You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're reading in Philippians chapter 3 into the beginning of chapter 4. This evening, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find the passage begins on page 1180, 1180, 1180. Paul has begun uh, chapter 3 by warning the Philippians against false teachers whom he describes very forcefully in uh, chapter 3, verse 2, as dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. And he he has more to say about those who trouble the church, whether these are the same individuals or not, uh, is uh, difficult to impossible to tell but you'll notice his spirit. So we're reading from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I don't know how many of you, uh, when you began your Christian life or before, decided you would read through the Bible and began in Genesis chapter 1. It would be interesting just as a statistic to know how many of you who did that ever got past Leviticus. Uh, Some people do, but they're definitely in the minority. And there are many reasons for that, but one reason is the Bible is actually quite a long book. Usually we disguise that fact by using very small typeface, much smaller than in most most books you read, and the whole thing is usually printed in double columns. So the Bible is a very big book, but it's a book, despite the fact it's written by perhaps up to three dozen different human authors, it has a single plot line. And if you grasp that single plot line, wherever you are in the Bible, you're able to connect it back to the plot line. 
They say there is a road that eventually leads you to London from every hamlet in England. And the same would be true of Dundee, isn't there? There is a road somewhere in Scotland that eventually gets you to Dundee. And one of the big elements of that plot line is that the Bible story, certainly from its third chapter right to the very end, is a war story. And if you can keep your eye on the fact that there is a war on and that there are many battles being fought in that war, it's amazing how relatively easily you can fit the storylines of the Bible, which are many, to that great central line that from the promise in Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman, and eventually one seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan, and that until that time takes place, there will be conflict and opposition and antagonism to God's people and to the gospel. And after that moment has come, the antagonism will continue until eventually that antagonism is destroyed by the coming of Jesus Christ. So, from Genesis 3.15 right to the end of the book of Revelation, it's a war story. Uh, The church of Jesus Christ lives in a conflict zone, a place where there is always antagonism. Sometimes it flares up into a major war, but always that antagonism is there. And that's the situation in which Paul is writing to the Philippians. The Philippians is a minor narrative in the middle of this great narrative. It's the story of Paul and his coming to Philippi, preaching the gospel. You remember from Acts chapter 16, immediately antagonism broke out. Immediately, powers of darkness sought to silence his preaching. Immediately, civil powers sought to imprison him and silence him. And even now, as he writes to the Philippians, he tells them about the struggle that they saw in him, the battle that continues in his life, in which they also share. And so, when we narrow down even to a small four-chapter letter like Philippians, it, it fits into this big picture. Remember how Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, 18, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will seek to destroy it, but will never be able to do it. That's the context in which Christ builds every church, including the church at Philippi, including, for that matter, St. Peter's here in Dundee. And so, Paul is concerned for these Christians because they're living their Christian life, perhaps a, a decade old, the oldest of the Christians in Philippi, and he's telling them that the conflict continues. And it will continue until, as the book of Revelation sees, the the great city of man 
the city of Babylon is destroyed, and the city of God, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven uh, attired like a, a bride for her husband. And it's the deep background, the shadow background of this passage this evening. I happened to download something. Somebody will be able to help me afterwards. It's not the reason I'm mentioning it, but uh, it illustrates the point. I downloaded something from a website somewhere. I tried to reformat it, and it had that kind of light blue background, and nothing I could do could deliver me from that light blue background. I tried to, to pull out the words and paste it into somewhere else, and there the blue background appears again. Um, that's what it's like in the Christian life. Uh, when I printed it out, marvelously, didn't use up too much of my blue ink, it, but it was there. And the Christian life is like this. Sometimes this conflict uh, is, is very evident personally and in the life of a Christian fellowship. Sometimes you can hardly see it. But Paul wants us to understand and wants these Christians in Philippi to understand that we're always in this battle. And that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, notice the therefore that connects it to what has preceded it. Therefore, he says, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved, stand firm. If you were reading Paul's letters consecutively in the New Testament, those words would still be ringing in your ears from the end of Ephesians chapter 6, the great chapter on the Christian warfare and armor, where at least three times Paul urges them in a few verses, stand, and having done all, stand. And the great thing in the Christian life and as you get older, it seems greater and greater, considering your sins and the, the context of the antagonism to the gospel. It is an amazing thing to keep standing. And you sense something of Paul's passion here in these words. Therefore, he says, I haven't checked this up, but I do not think there is a single sentence in all of Paul's writings that shows so much personal passion for his readers than you find in this verse. Look at the way he describes them. First of all, my brothers. Then he says, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. And this is, this is pulling the affections of the Apostle Paul out towards them and is characteristic of ourselves and certainly characteristic of the Apostle Paul. What does that is the urgency and importance of what he's saying. Stand firm. That's the, that's the message, stand firm. You know, when we read Paul, we always... Um, we always like to complain a little and say, it's okay for you, mighty Apostle Paul, 
to urge we peon Christians to stand firm, will you not tell us how to do it? You know, I'd, I'd love to kind of overhear a conversation here and, and someone in the Philippian church saying just exactly what I've said. It's all very well for him. Maybe somebody who had been converted five years after Paul had been there. All very well for him. But he never seems to tell us how to do what we're supposed to do. And uh, whoever had the, the letter, Epaphroditus seems to have been taking it back saying, don't you notice that little word, thus? He's just told you how to do it. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Just as the therefore logically connects what he's saying back to the end of chapter 3, the thus connects us back to the contents of the end of chapter 3, to say this is how you stand firm in the Lord. Thus, in this way, this is the way in which you stand firm in the Lord. And I want to suggest that we can encapsulate what Paul is saying here uh, in three words. First of all, he is encouraging the Philippians to imitation. Secondly, he's encouraging them to recognition. And thirdly, he's encouraging them to anticipation. It's about as near to rhyming as I can get this evening. Imitation, recognition, anticipation. And there's a rhythm there, isn't there? Imitation, recognition, anticipation. First of all, imitation. He says, here, here is one of the keys to standing firm, looking at the examples that God wants you to follow. It's a very interesting thing. It's one of the reasons why we need a church. I heard the other day that the Church of Scotland has got somebody starting a, a, an online church. Well, an online church isn't going to do people much good unless they get near enough to, unless some whiz kid invents a way of sending smell onto the world wide web, and atmospheres, and character, and personality. Because this is, this is how we grow as Christians. This is what teaches us to stand firm as Christians, not just that the Word of God is verbally taught to us, but what the Word of God looks like in flesh and blood surrounds us. For many of us, this is how we first of all came to Christ. Yes, we may have came, come to Christ listening to a message, but, but often there was a connection to that message that helped us to make sense of the message because we had, we had actually seen it in flesh and blood terms and people we actually knew. And, we, and we, we made that connection. And that's true of the whole of the Christian life. That's why Christ does not simply call isolated individuals, but He calls us together to be the church. And so, Paul makes this very bold statement. It may seem uh, to you to be a very bold statement, 
He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Actually, he says more or less the same thing on several occasions. He urges the Corinthians to do it. He tells the Thessalonians that they actually did it, and that was, that was one of the reasons they were, they were growing. Now, Paul makes it very clear that he's less than the least of all saints, so, so why this egocentrism? Well, it's not egocentrism because his principle, as he enunciates it in 1 Corinthians 11, is follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as you see me imitating the Lord Jesus. That is to say, not, and I know this sometimes happens with young Christians, not, not to think that it's the mannerisms of an individual or the way they speak or the way they dress, but the, the elements that make them tick. To, to see the gospel working out in their lives. And then he says, not only me, but uh, you'll notice this is an egocentric. Join in imitating me. And he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what's really interesting about him saying this at this point is that if we'd been sitting here listening to the letter, instead of having, having at least a, a week's gap between one section and another where, you know, it's kind of hard to remember what happened the last time. But if you're sitting there in the church and listening to this, you'd immediately make the connection to what he's just been saying. Because the, more or less the whole of the third chapter has been Paul talking about the work of God's grace in him. And then you remember taking up a chunk of time in, in, uh, in chapter 2 describing Timothy and Epaphroditus and the way in which they imitated Jesus, whom he had described in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. So, he doesn't need to spell it out here. He's speaking about Timothy, who, who is concerned about the things that belong to Jesus Christ. He's, he's speaking about himself and the model of his life and how he embraced the cross. And he's saying, now just, just, just keep your eyes on us. Uh, just watch how we do it. Um, now, you and I wouldn't probably say that, although there might be occasions when you might want to say to a a younger Christian, just watch me. If you're taking a younger Christian out in some situation in which you are going to be verbally witnessing to Christ, you would do that, wouldn't you? You'd say, no, just, you know, don't. I have a friend who went on operation mobilization, and the, the, the fellow he was with was sure that he could communicate to the Italians, and they'd turn up at a door, and he says, we sello biblio to you italiano, you know, and you my friend wants to say, you just, just for the next day or two, you watch how I do it. And that's a great thing, isn't it? And that's, we grow spiritually, as well as naturally, by a kind of osmosis, don't we? Um, and so it is in the church. 
And what's marvelous about the three illustrations is here's, here's Paul, who's been a Christian for a couple of decades. Here's Timothy, who's been a Christian for probably just over 10 years. Here's Epaphroditus. Maybe he's been a Christian for seven years. And, and it's as though you can see how to do it at various ages and at, and at various stages. You know, that's the awful thing about what happens in some church plants where everybody is under 25 or under 35. I've had ministers tell me they haven't had anybody die in their congregation for 15 years. And so nobody knows how to be a Christian when you're dying. Nobody knows how to, what it's like to go through the, the pain of loss, bereavement, lamentation. It, it shouldn't, dear friends, it shouldn't surprise us that the majority of contemporary songs that are written largely by younger people have got almost no lamentation in them. You see? And it's one of the blessings of belonging here, isn't it? And this is, this is how we learn to stand fast. It's, 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 it's not rocket science. It's just hanging around real Christians. And then he says something. I, th I think this is, this is really quite fascinating. You notice how he puts it. Uh, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. That's my English standard version. I'll not look up what it is in the NIV. Now, here's something really interesting. This is a verb to imitate and it's got a prefix, you know, the wee bit that's stuck on in the front that means do it along with each other. Now, here's the really, this is, this is mind-bending. This is the only place in the New Testament that this word occurs. More than that, it is the only place in all ancient literature written in Greek which was the common language of the Roman Empire, where the verb occurs. There's more than one place where I think it's quite possible. Paul actually, he, you know, he was a bit like a German. He just made the word up. There are these words lying out there, and he, he puts them together. Why? Because there's something so unique about the gospel. It actually kind of creates its own vocabulary. You don't this isn't something you find in, uh, in the club or in the profession or in the society or in the school or in the hospital where there is this tremendous sense that we're all doing this together and it's as we do it together we are brought closer to one another to stand together in the midst of all the difficulties and opposition that there may be to the gospel. And it, it's, uh, you know, um, he was one shrewd cookie, was the Apostle Paul. What happens? Well, it's happening now. I can't take everybody in, but most of you are not sleeping. And actually, most of you are looking in this direction, which means what? You're not looking at each other. When does, when does division begin to develop? 
when did it develop here? Why is it that the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I beg Yodi and I beg Suntiki to, to agree together in the Lord. Why? Because they're, 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 they're looking at each other. I'm right. No, I'm right. You're wrong. No, we'll do it this way. No, we'll do it my way. And you see, that's what they need. They need their, they need their eyes turned away to the models of Christ who is concerned about the things of others. And it's this that enables us together, this draws us together to stand firm in the Lord. What a benediction it is to belong to a congregation where there are people that you can, you know, you can just be watching out of the corner of your eye. Uh, it would be embarrassing if I mentioned those that I watch out of the corner of my eye in St. Peter's and say, Lord, make me a wee bit more like him or her. So, first of all, there is imitation. But Paul wants us to understand that we, we, we not only need to look for models but we need to watch out because uh, there is also danger. There is influence that constantly dogs the life of the church that seeks to destroy the fellowship of the church. And so he speaks in the second place not just about imitation, but about recognition not only to watch for, but to, to watch out for. And you'll notice how he puts this in verses 18 and 19. He says, brothers, not only imitate me and others like me, but watch out for the fact that there are many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. So this is, this is not harsh, metallic Apostle Paul. This is broken-hearted Apostle Paul. He says, I'm telling you with tears that you need to guard yourself against those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I think it's not possible to be certain who these people are. It may be he's referring to the people he described earlier on with their Jewish influences, whom he describes as dogs, which was the their way of describing Gentiles and speaks about them as mutilating the flesh because they were insisting on circumcision. If he's referring to the same people, then the sarcasm here is, is even deeper. He, he, he describes their insistence on food laws as, as making a god out of their bellies um, and as enemies of the cross of Christ and, and perhaps with reference to circumcision and the, and the circumcising of the male private parts glorying in their shame. Or perhaps he's referring to, to some other group, but obviously they were a deep concern to him because he says, I'm telling you this with tears in my eyes and I've often told you about these people. So, Paul how do I recognize someone 
who is going to dislocate me from Jesus Christ. And I think he gives us here some important clues. And I want to suggest that from this passage, there are, there are four questions that he encourages us to ask. So this is a sermon with three points, and the second point has four sub-points. I'm sorry about that. Let me just mention them to you. Friend, what do you make of the cross? That's a question I need to be asking. What do you make of the cross? Someone comes along to influence us in some way, a teacher we hear. You know, we've got these free, this free channel on television now you know, with all these people from largely from the United States appearing? How do we know they're the real deal? First of all, what, what do they make of the cross? In some instances, they may make nothing of the cross. And for Paul, that means they're an enemy of the cross. Remember how he puts it, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And where there is a teacher or a preacher or an influence that doesn't have that absolute central emphasis on the atoning death of Jesus Christ, in my place condemned he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Where that is absent or twisted, Paul describes these people as enemies of the cross. That harsh language, well, he says it with tears. Why is that not harsh language? Because the cross is what it cost the heavenly Father to give you salvation. And therefore, to ignore the cross, to deny the cross, or to dilute the cross is to reject that which has been most costly to the heavenly Father. And then not only what do they make of the cross, but uh, how do they live their lives? He says, what, whatever it means, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Um, we're surrounded by that today, aren't we? I sometimes think if, if the proverbial little man, green usually, were to appear on the planet from Mars, and incidentally, I happen to have inside information, when that little green man appears, he probably has more legal status in the United Kingdom than anyone in the world who is not a British citizen. It, it's, all, it's all out there in international space law. But when he appears and he looks round and he, he gets the newspaper um, and, and he reads the magazines, I, mean, I, do, I do not mean the pornographic magazines, I mean when he reads the London Times or when he reads Vogue, what is he going to conclude is the God of Western civilization. It's our appetites, isn't it? I mean, how, how many major companies use advertising that doesn't, however subtly, appeal to the appetites? 
appeal to our baser instincts. Everything from sexual appetites to belly appetites to uh, appetites about our own reputation and how we will see, seem to ourselves to be better, bigger, richer, or whatever than others, more successful than others. And they glory in their shame. These are the expensive magazines. What, what, do we, what is one of the great characteristics of the early 21st century in the, in the modern world is the extent to which we glory in things that the Bible regards as shame. Things that shouldn't even be mentioned, says the Apostle Paul. And, and people glory in them. Remember how he finishes Romans 1, 18 to 32 by saying, what you will notice when people overturn the order of God is that they have to draw everybody into that. I mean, it's an, it's an, it, uh, he knew it in the Roman Empire. It, 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 is, it is one of the amazing things of our times that that has happened and like lemmings, our society is running into that water. And, and you see how this, this is the very kind of thing that can, that can choke the holy atmosphere out of the life of the church. And it's happening. And Paul is saying, don't you see that these things go together? There's no cross there. Says Jesus, if anyone is going to be my disciple, then he must bear the cross. Says Paul, let me never glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. This is radically countercultural. And Paul is helping us to understand that unless we ask these questions, we may end up not distinguishing between the gospel culture and the world's culture. So what do they make of the cross? How do they live their lives? And the third question is, where is their focus? And he puts it this way, their minds are set on earthly things. Um, some of us are old enough. I have never applied for a job in my life. Uh, so I, ha I never had to do what the advert said. Uh, applicants should respond in their own handwriting. I used to think in my naivety that all they wanted to know was that you could write and that other people could read your handwriting. If it was a, if it was a serious job, those letters were being passed on to a handwriting analyst. I once encountered a handwriting analyst if you've never done that, you have no idea how skilled good handwriting analysts actually are. And what they could tell you from your handwriting, well, the first thing they would tell me now is I can't read it. But that tells me a great deal about your personality. Now, you, companies don't do that any longer. Those of you who are younger, you know this, don't you? You know what companies do. And if you, you know, if you're, if you're, paying thousands of pounds a year 
to take a handwriting analysis course, forget about it. You need to learn how to use a computer because if you're applying, one of the things they're going to do is they're going to look at your Twitter account. Why will they look at your Twitter account? Because they will see what you have never bothered to look. Just as handwriting analysts looked for things that you didn't look for, what are they looking for? They're looking for patterns of interest. They're looking for expressions of what really gets you going. Um, in, in my own little experience, I have seen a candidate for a pastoral position, an important pastoral position, turned down when he was a very strong candidate because the chairman of the committee happened to be a high-powered lawyer who downloaded 3,000 of this minister's tweets and analyzed his interests. Well, what would appear in yours? And, and thinking about this from, from the, the perspective of someone who is not a Christian and the influences of the non-Christian world the non-Christian world is not interested in the cross. The non-Christian world is not interested in self-denial. The non-Christian world is not interested in humility. The non-Christian world that Paul is thinking about here, and we see in our, in our own world, and you see it, it seeps into our minds. And uh, if our minds are not full of Scripture, if there's nothing spiritual there, begins to influence us. And, 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 and our minds, instead of going Christ-word and Scripture-word and the fellowship of the church-word, they, you know, they, they go off in, in all kinds of carnal and worldly directions. And this is why Paul has spent so much time on having the mind of Christ. My friends, that's such an important thing to know that what goes into your mind is so significant in what influences your affections, your emotions, your dispositions, your responses. And, and Paul is warning us here. And then he, he warns us in what may be the most helpful way. He says, now, you need to ask these questions. What do they make of the cross? How do they live their lives? On what do they focus and fourthly, what's their destiny? This person who wants to influence me or, or the church or the fellowship or the Christian union, uh, what's their destiny? You see what he's saying? He's saying now, you just watch the trajectory of their lives, their interests, their dispositions, their speech. Now, he says, project that forward into eternity. What's, what's the destiny? And he says, their end is destruction. And this is so Paul. Paul always says to us, you must never think about anyone simply from the now perspective of their appearance. Uh, you, you know, this is, this is a kind of version of Newton's law, isn't it? A body in motion tends to stay in motion. Just what, where is such a life? 
What is such a life going to look like as it presents itself before the the God, the holy God of the universe who saw his son die in agony on the cross for sinners? What is a life that has despised Jesus Christ and God's word and God's grace and God's ways and God's mercy and God's compassion and God's providence? What's that going to look like when it stands before the throne of God? That's what that life really is. That's what you say. And you see, when you see that, uh, then the, the, the blinkers come off and, and you, see, you see these influences for, for what they really are. And that's what enables you to, as he says here, stand firm in the Lord. Because you've, you've seen through it all Is Paul being harsh? Their end is destruction. No, he's weeping about the fact that their end is destruction. But precisely because their end is destruction, he's warning, helping us to see through them. Uh, Asaph, you remember in Psalm 73, wondered why why the people who bought vogue or appeared in vogue seemed to have such marvelous lives. And then he says, I went into the temple of God and then I saw their end their end. And that cured me from ever thinking that they were good examples for me to follow. And that leads to the third thing. There is imitation, there's recognition, and then there's, there's something else. He says there's anticipation. Uh, we've just been speaking about the judgment seat of God. But he says you draw the line from living for Jesus Christ, draw that line forwards, and, and what do you discover? And so he says, he says, by contrast, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, this is, this is three nights' work. This passage is so full. Just remember these, these uh, people are sitting there in Philippi, a Roman colony, under the power of the emperor, living in the so-called peace that Rome brought because the emperor was now regarded as the savior of the people. And Paul is saying, you know, when you, when you see the gospel, you understand that the emperor is a despot and not a lord of grace. And uh, you remember in, I don't know, second year Latin, if you did Latin, or somewhere in primary school in Scottish history, you learned about the Battle of Mons Graupus and uh, the great Caledonian chief Calgacus, who declaims there, these Romans, they make a desert and they call it peace. And that was the truth of the matter. He's saying, you see, as we project all this forward, all this Roman power, my friends, where is the Roman Empire today? Where is the Roman Empire today? He says, you belong to a different empire altogether. And you have a real Savior. 
And the reason you hang on is because you know one day that Savior is going to appear from heaven. And this little body of yours and all its lowliness and weakness and frailty, he is going to transform to be like his glorious body. And you see how that brings to a kind of conclusion this theme he's been working on, that you imitate those who imitate Christ, and you slowly become like those who imitate Christ as they become like Christ. And he's saying, spiritually, a body that's in that motion stays in motion until the whole process is consummated. And the day comes when he will come again in majesty and power and raise the dead and transform these bodies, our very bodies of lowliness, to be like his body of glory. And he will do that by his power. Think of the power of Rome. That's what Rome was best known for. The hammer-like exercise of power and crushing everything that got in the way. And here is the power of Christ that has crushed the head of the serpent and fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15. And Paul is saying he's going to come again. And he's going to bring in his empire. And in his grace, he will subject everything to himself. And we're looking forward to that. We're anticipating that. We're standing on tiptoe for that day. You see, the Christian doesn't live back to the future, does he or she? The Christian lives back from the future. And that's such a great lesson to learn. That when you've seen the future and you come back to the present, you know that if he's going to do that, then no matter how lowly we seem to ourselves to be and no matter how influential the powers that are ranged against God and Christ and His Word and His church and the gospel, no matter how big they seem to be, by the power that's at work in Him, He will subdue them to Himself. That's why I say, where is the Roman Empire now? And where is the empire of our Lord Jesus Christ now? He has more citizens on this planet than any emperor ever had, than any dictator has ever had, than any king has been able to boast of. And one day he will come again and bring the whole drama to a conclusion. And we will reign with him forever and forever. And so in this way, Paul is saying, whatever the difficulties are, whatever the opposition is, in the big picture, the opposition is weak. The time of antagonism is short, because in the big picture, the Savior is great, and the time of living with Him is for all eternity. You know, I suppose wherever the Philippians were meeting now, maybe still meeting for all I know in the house of Lydia, the seller of purple 
It must have been pretty interesting if people called at the wrong time. You know, sometimes people do. They, they, they call you on the phone during the evening service. And maybe somebody knocked on the door. And uh, one of Lydia's servants went to the door and said, well, they're, they're meeting just now, but come in and sit in the back row. Sit up in the gallery. Uh, they'll be finished in a few minutes. And they're reading and talking about this. Uh, wouldn't you, if you were such a visitor, wouldn't you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you get hold of somebody and say, I've got to learn more about this. What a great thing it is to be a Christian. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of the gospel. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.